Thank you, Jesus. If you'll remain standing, open your Bible to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 will be in verses 16 through 34. If you're just joining us, we're in a series through the Gospel of John. And we are seeing Jesus on every page. And he is king. He is majestic. He is Lord. He is exalted. And will be always. Beginning in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started crossing uh, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they say, said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you now as always for your word, that it is truth and it is life. And we need that uh, in a world full of lies and full of death. Uh, Lord, we need it as people who otherwise are clamoring around uh, in the dark, trying to find our own way, make our own way, uh, and stumbling over ourselves in the process. So we come before you today acknowledging that each one of us brings our own uh, needs and circumstances, burdens, and just station in life to this place right now, this moment right now, needing to hear you speak into our lives and our situations. And so we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word, 
by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory because all of this is yours lord and i ask as always that you would move me out of the way use my voice as your instrument today to speak to these people gathered here we ask it in the name of jesus amen you may be seated well, let me begin by telling you something I know about everyone in the room. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. And everybody pursues their own happiness. That is so common to the human experience that really every philosopher, every school of philosophy has spoken in some way to that issue because it is such a pursuit of the human heart. St. Thomas Aquinas said that happiness is the last end to which man's will tends naturally. Happiness is the last end to which man's will tends naturally. Naturally, your will and mind pursues happiness, even unconsciously, as naturally as a hound dog does. If you let the tailgate down and let the dog out of the truck, you don't need to prompt it most of the time to, to chase whatever game it is that it's trained to chase or bred to chase. It'll sniff it out, whether it's birds or uh, foxes, coons, rabbits, Deer, whatever it is, it just naturally tends that way. And in a similar way, the will of man just naturally tends toward, is inclined to pursue happiness. And our wills actually will pursue all kinds of things, but the ultimate goal, the last end, is happiness. And before I give some examples of that, I should say, not only do I know about everybody here, that everybody wants to be happy, uh, what I also know, I could, divide, uh, I could divide us up into two major groups, probably. Many of you are not happy. Um, right now, it may be just a particularly unhappy season of life. It may be, uh, in spite of your most earnest and fervent pursuits, you just haven't attained it. And it has a whole lot to do with the fact that you're looking in the wrong places. But there are many here today who would know and they would, they, would, they would say if they're honest with themselves, even if they wouldn't be honest with other people, you're not happy. And the rest of the group who may right now be happy will soon enough visit a season where you're not happy. And the reason for that is because true, lasting, perfect happiness, real happiness cannot be found on this earth. It is, that's also part of the human experience, that whatever, whatever small taste we get of happiness, um, it isn't lasting and it isn't, it isn't perfect. It is interrupted and tainted by all kinds of uh, experiences of living in a fallen world. But our wills pursue all kinds of things with that goal. And so we choose careers because we think that there's some measure of happiness to be found in the work itself, the income that that work will bring, the opportunities it affords for us, or the way that it makes us feel important or valued or whatever. We're seeking happiness um, in, in pursuing that career. We are in a relationships that we think are going to bring us happiness. Even as we've had maybe, uh, we had a life 
lifelong desire to be married and to have children and so on. That was always part of uh, what we imagined for ourselves, that even as we seek that out and enter into it, um, it is our own happiness uh, that is an end goal to us in that, those relationships. We buy houses, cars, boats, and RVs, go out to eat at restaurants, take vacations, and so on and so forth, all in the pursuit of happiness. We could go on listing examples, but suffice it to say, the pursuit of happiness is common to every human being, and as I said, it's also common to every human being that no one can attain it truly and completely in this life. Everybody wants it, and nobody can attain it. Well, those, those are, are the twin realities at play in John chapter 6. This underlies this whole interaction between uh, Jesus and this crowd. And I would say, in some respect, it underlies Jesus' interaction with the world because he comes with an answer to that desire, that pursuit. And uh, spoiler alert, he is the answer. It's in, in himself. And, and I, I, I want to say this is one of these messages where we are at risk of not hearing it. We're at risk of not hearing it because it's so familiar. The language of, of this sort of message and even the, the subject itself is just so familiar um, that, that we're at risk of not hearing what we desperately need to hear. You know, I think there are a lot of Christians, if, if we had to take a... a, a and it, you know, a test every year to renew our Christian license. You know, every five years or something like that. If we had to take the test to renew our Christian license, we could answer all the questions to pass the test. And whether our life in the intervening years would actually line up with what we said to be true is, is another question altogether. And so I, I, I want very earnestly... Uh, to grab your attention this morning, to hear God's word, that he has something to say to every one of us who, like the crowds here surrounding Jesus, are pursuing happiness. And maybe to some of us, Jesus would tell us, as he, tell, as he told them, they're pursuing it in all the wrong places. They're looking in the wrong place, even, even, as, they're, even as they're following Jesus looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. And so I want to focus our attention on this singular point this morning. I don't have any kind of outline other than this. The single point of the message is this exhortation, do not seek happiness in any created thing, but only in God himself. Do not seek happiness in any created thing, but only in God himself. Well, chapter 6 is one long unit, and it is quite long, 71 verses long. And uh, even though I'm breaking it up into multiple messages, it is, it is one continuous unit. And so Jesus teaches a crowd, feeds the crowd, and then teaches the crowd again at some length before he finally disperses the crowd with a really hard saying at the end of this chapter. And of course, those people follow Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and back to hear that teaching. 
Well, actually, they don't necessarily follow to hear the teaching, but they hear, they hear the teaching because that's what Jesus has for them. They follow him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and back in pursuit of, of him. And you remember if you were here last week in the previous passage, Jesus had gone over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee actually to get away from the crowd. He was, uh, he was going on a little retreat, if you will, to get some rest. He was going away to a desolate place, it tells us in the other Gospels. And the crowd followed him there. They were in a remote location. He taught them there until late in the day. And then they, they realize it's late in the day and the crowd doesn't have anything to eat. And, of course, that provides the occasion for the, the multiplication of this, uh, the five loaves and the two fish that feeds the multitude there. And after they ate and were satisfied, you remember they identified him as the prophet that was long awaited, the prophet like Moses himself that they had been expecting. And they wanted to make him king by force. It's kind of, a, that's a little odd thing, isn't it, right? Since so many people think their greatest dream would be to be the king. You know, when you're a kid, you want to be in charge of everybody. You know, king would be the very best thing to be. It's a little bit of an odd phrase. They're going to make him king by force, it said. So I suppose when life, you know, the saying goes, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. But when life gives you a guy who can feed thousands of people with just five loaves, you make him king. And uh, that was their plan. And so it says at the end of that passage, Jesus withdrew from them once again and, uh, because that wasn't part of the plan. So, so he, sort of, he sort of disappears. He exits stage right and he's gone, and so the disciples then, as we open in this passage that we just read, uh, the sun, as, as the sun goes down, again, they, it was late in the day when, they were, when he was teaching them, and then when he multiplied the fish, uh, the loaves and the fish. So as the sun, sun sets, the disciples got into a boat and rowed back across the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum. It says there in verse uh, 16 and following. And if you have your Bible, you can sort of trace along with me uh, with your eyes, as I just kind of survey what's here. Because it says it was dark when they started out. A strong wind blew up, um, and, and the sea became rough. The Sea of Galilee was, is, is sort of positioned in such a way. There's a mountain uh, right up against it on one side. The sea itself sits at a very uh, low uh, altitude. It's actually below sea level. And so the, there, there can be sharp, sudden contrasts in temperature because they're right up against that mountain where the air cools and it drops down in a hurry. And so the weather can change suddenly. Of course, if you've been out on the water, even here some, you know that that's, case. that's the case even in the summer out on the ocean here where um, because of changes in temperature and that kind of thing and just the heat of the day, you suddenly a storm can blow up that nobody uh, told you in any forecast was going to blow up. And what happens to you out there in the water here is the same thing that happened to them out in the water there. That the waves, the waves get rough, the sea gets rough, and all of a sudden you feel small. You feel small. And uh, these are experienced fishermen. Many of several of the disciples are experienced fishermen. This is not their first night out on the sea, out on the water, right? It's not their first night on rough seas. Um, but here they are, and uh, then they, you know, getting miles uh, along, about three to four miles out, it says. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. 
And in John's telling of this, what's, what's particularly frightened, frightening to them is not the waves itself, although that is uh, scary in its own right, but it was frightening to see Jesus walking on the water. What, is it, what was it that they were seeing? And uh, what, what's interesting about that is John is one of three gospel writers that tells that account of Jesus walking on the water, and he actually doesn't make a whole lot of it. It's in, in this chapter of John's gospel, it's a little bit of a transitional uh, mention. And I don't know if you caught it that way, but it said they're on one side of the sea, going to the other side of the sea. Jesus is going to teach the crowd on both sides. And part of the passage across the sea is Jesus walks on the water. And he just kind of mentions it almost in passing. Uh, but the disciples are frightened there, and then they bring him on the boat, and then they arrive at shore. And meanwhile, you read there, looking in verse 22, it says the crowd is still on the other side of the sea. Had, they hadn't seen Jesus leave. Because they're dialed in to Jesus. Again, they want him to be king. This is a guy who can do good things for them. I mean, if he can, if he can do that with bread, imagine what he could do, you know, with a, with a lamb, you know, a leg of lamb or whatever. I mean, you know, they're just all kinds of stuff, man, this guy could do for him. And they're dialed in. They haven't seen him leave. They know the disciples are gone. There was only one boat there. They're wondering what happened. And so they boarded some boats themselves and go across to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him, they asked when he got there. I don't know if you, you caught that question. That was actually, I don't know, again, a little bit of a, you would think the question would be, how did you get here? Hey, Jesus, when did you get here? And, um, you know, Jesus answers as he often answers people, and that is by not answering their actual question. <laughs> he tells them what they, what they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. But, but it's there in verse uh, 26 where it starts to get interesting. I want to slow us down right here and focus our attention on this because it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now you'll remember this ties in with the end of my message last week because uh, one of the things that told us back in, in, in verse 2, John said the crowd had followed Jesus over in the first place because of the signs they saw him doing among the sick. Do you remember that? This, is, this has been true of, of lots of people throughout John's gospel so far. They follow Jesus because of the signs. Either because they just want to watch him do amazing stuff, or because they want to be on the receiving end of that. It could be some combination of it. But it says that originally they went over there to, because they saw the signs. Now Jesus is saying, it's not because of the signs, it's because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember last week I said, this is the kind of Jesus that they wanted and that many in our day want. Heal our bodies, fill our bellies, secure our borders. And, and, the, and, and Jesus is saying they're moving along there. They followed him the first time because of the signs they saw him doing among the sick. Now they found out he, could, he can feed them quick. I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to earn bread. You don't have to make bread. You just kind of sit and receive a belly full of bread. This is, a, this is a good deal. And Jesus says, that's the reason you're following me. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. Because they are literally going to great lengths to follow Jesus, and they're missing him. You catch that? I mean, they have, they have, they have followed by foot the first time. 
from, from their towns, wherever they were, and it's probably a, a crowd that, gather, that, that sort of grows as the crowd goes. So they go through one town, and people hear where they're going. They're going to see Jesus on the other side here, and some of the other people join the crowd. But it says in the other Gospels, they followed them on foot from their towns, but to great lengths to follow Jesus. And then when they see he's gone, they get in a boat and come back across to find him. They don't even know where he's going to be for sure. But they're looking for him. They are following. Listen, they're putting in the work. And they are missing him. He's right there. And they're looking, for, they're looking at him the wrong way. They're looking for the wrong things from him. I mean, this is, this is a little bit like, you know, when you're looking for your glasses and they're on top of your head, you know, and, and you're uh, just going crazy. I don't know where my glasses are. And then somebody sees you. You have a funny moment. Or when you call, you know, you're calling to work. I'm sorry, I'm running late. I can't find my phone. I mean, it's right there, right? It's right there, and you're just not seeing it. Here they are in the presence of Jesus. Literally, he's right there, and they're not seeing who he really is. Following him all around, looking for the wrong things from him. And so, the crux of the message here is in verse 27. I think it's the crux of my message this morning, but I think this is really a pivotal verse in the whole of chapter 6. That, that, something, that something pivots on this verse right there, verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then down in verses um, 33 and 34, Jesus gives more of a hint. It's, it's, it's actually beyond just a hint. But not only will the Son of Man give it to him, not only has the Father set his seal on him, but it says the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, sir, give us this bread always. I want that bread. Now whether they even, whether they even understand at that point what it is they're saying they want is quite doubtful. Again, by the end of the chapter, it's not doubtful at all because many of them will leave. They don't really want to follow him when they understand more about who he is and what he demands. But do not work for food that perishes. And all of us can understand the first part of that metaphor on some basic level, right? Because we've all had the experience of taking bread out of the cabinet uh, or wherever it is, out of the bag, and, uh, and finding, you know, as we're getting ready, we, 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 our mouth is watering for that sandwich we're going to make or the, uh, the, the toast. I don't know that your mouth waters for toast, really, but, uh, but whatever it is we're going to make, we open the bread up and find the bread's beginning to mold, right? Everybody's had that experience before because it doesn't take long at all for that to happen. As soon as bread is baked, it begins to spoil. If it's fresh bread... It happens even faster, doesn't it? you got about three or four days. And so what's interesting about that, when, when you think, when you, I know you don't think about bread a whole lot, and you don't think about moldy bread uh, a whole lot, but let's think about moldy bread for a minute. 
because uh, it's not much of a big deal to us when that happens because bread doesn't cost us much, right? It's, it's cheap, and if it goes bad, we're just, we'll just get more bread when we go to the store next time. It's not a great big deal to us. If you really had to labor for bread, like if that was really a significant expense to you, that maybe it's, it's all you had to eat was bread. Well, that's a bigger deal then, right? If the bread goes bad. And so imagine, because maybe you've done this even when you bake fresh bread, you don't want it to go bad either. That was a lot of work. But, uh, you know, so there's this, there's this sort of balancing act, because if, especially if, if bread uh, was some cost to you, you don't want to, um, you don't want to eat it wastefully. You don't want to overeat. You want to, you want to sort of ration it appropriately to make it last as long as it needs to last. But you can't afford to let it last too long. And so the interesting thing about that is, is, is the bread that perishes, as Jesus said, um, actually in a small way becomes sort of a master over you. Even just that, even just a little loaf of bread. Uh, because you, you are, you're trying to eat it fast enough, but not too fast. And so Jesus is saying here, with that as a metaphor, don't, don't work, don't labor for food that perishes. Don't pursue happiness in created things. All of them perish. All of them perish. And what's more, they don't really satisfy most of them, even temporarily. And Jesus spoke of that more uh, fully in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, 19 and 20. And many of you know the passage where he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Created things in general are just passing away. As soon as they are made, they are spoiling. As soon as they are made, they are falling apart. And none of them deserves too much of our desire or our delight uh, or affection. Do not seek happiness in any created thing, but only in God himself. And this, this really is, I said, you know, this... Uh, when we say even things like that, true happiness is only in Jesus, and Christians will nod and say, yes, amen, and I think we, we miss it. We miss the point so often because we don't really live our lives as if that's true. We don't really believe it. Like I said, we would, we would be able to answer the question right on the uh, license renewal exam, but we, we miss the real significance of that. But Christianity presents people with a choice between two competing ways of life. This is the way Jesus talked, and you find it in a, ver a, a variety of places in the Bible. We might think immediately of the words of Jesus again in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, where he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. Most people will enter by the wide gate. And that's a way that leads to destruction, Jesus said. 
Two, two ways of life. This is what Jesus uh, invites us into. It is, it is more than just in our heads saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. Eternal life. Well, yeah, of course I want eternal life. Let me check the eternal life box and then go on about living my life the way that I want to live it. He invites us into a way of life. And again, I'm afraid the significance of that contrast is lost on us today, especially in the affluent country that we live in, in the U.S., because there are so many shiny, attractive things in this world that we can set our hearts upon and our pursuits upon. The, the first century church had a discipleship training guide for, for Christians uh, referred to today as just the Didache. That's a Greek word for teaching. I've made reference to this before. That is not uh, inspired. That's not sort of part of the Bible. It doesn't deserve a place alongside that. But what's interesting about it is it's some little window into, um, in the early church, the first century church, what was it they were taught as people were uh, were becoming Christians as they were entering the Christian community and wanting to walk uh, the Christian walk out the Christian faith. Uh, it's a little, it's a short little handbook on what they were taught. And the very first sentence of the Didache, if you wanted to be a Christian, the very first line of what you would be taught is this. Let me turn the page and tell you. It says this, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And between the two ways, there's a great difference. In the first century, if you were going to be a Christian, that would, uh, those using that training guide would say, there are two ways, one of life and one of death, and between the two ways there's a great difference. And again, it seems, it seems to me um, that many Christians come to that fork in the road, as it were, where they're, they're, they're sort of walking along life as they've known it for, for however many years, and they, they come to this fork where there's an invitation to follow Jesus along the way of life, along the narrow way that he invites us into. And at that fork in the road, they say yes to belief in Jesus, of course I want eternal life, and then continue right along the road they were already marching on. No change in direction, no change in life, no change in affection. It is wanting to pursue their own desires, their own interests, their own passions and delights and have also Jesus. He does not offer himself as also Jesus. He says, lay down your life, take up your cross and follow me. And follow me along a particular path way of life. And that involves not pursuing happiness in a whole host, countless list of created things. And as I said, here's the thing. Every human being is on that pursuit. And it's why the gospel answers the need of every human being. Everybody here and everybody you know wants to be happy. And everybody you know is in pursuit of it in some way. What you can be absolutely sure of is they will not find it. Some of you know right now, and you're frustrated by it, and yet you keep on searching anyway. The thing you thought was going to make you happy, you laid hold of it, and it didn't make you happy at all. In fact, 
you're, you're, you're a little bit more angry or frustrated that it didn't make you happy, maybe even depressed because you had expectations that weren't met by it. It's, it's, it's terribly ironic, isn't it, that the pursuit of happiness in the wrong places actually buys you unhappiness. And, and, and there are some here today who know exactly what I'm talking about, and, and, and you're, you're, you're just stubborn enough right now that you're going to keep on looking for it anyway. And, uh, and you're going to stay frustrated, and you will not find it. You will not find it in any created thing. And we'll get a taste of it. We certainly get a taste of it. And we get more tastes of it um, as we follow Jesus and, and know him more intimately. But it's still only a taste uh, on this side of eternity. I want to close here with a couple of quotes from um, Augustine from his confessions of quoted from this before and, and recommended to you once before, one of the uh, greatest classic works of Christian literature um, where he just tell, he talks very candidly and openly. He sort of shares his thoughts and reflections on, on his heart. But here's what he said on this subject of happiness. And uh, I think we have a, a slide that has this, these couple of quotes on here. But he says, there is a joy that is not granted to the godless, but only to those who worship you without looking for reward, because you yourself are their joy. Pause and catch that again. Now, there's a joy not granted to the godless, but to those only who worship you without looking for reward. Do you, do you, connect the dots between that statement and the crowd we just read about who has followed Jesus to one side of the sea and back for the reward, not for himself, for what he could do. And that's why I say they are literally so close and have missed him because they haven't sought him for his own sake. Uh, God himself is our joy. He goes on. This is the happy life and this alone. You, you, you ought to uh, write this down or make a note of how you can go find this online because we need to know this truth. This is the happy life and this alone. To rejoice in you, about you, and because of you. You want happiness? Yes, you do. I know that. But how, here's how you find it, says Augustine. To rejoice in Christ, about Christ, and because of Christ. This is the life of happiness. And it is not to be found anywhere else. Whoever thinks there can be some other is chasing a joy that is not the true one. And the reason I am so convinced that Christians need to hear this message today and that, and that it keeps going over Christians' heads is because I have seen and heard a whole lot of unhappy Christians, especially in the last year and a half. And maybe it's just a season, but some of them seem to be settling in to unhappy 
and have just made it their new way of life. I mean, a whole lot of joyless, angry, frustrated, unhappy, restless Christians. Put any of those words in front of Christian and it is an oxymoron. Those words don't describe the life of a believer and yet those words do describe the life of lots of professing believers who at least at this moment aren't happy and haven't been so for a long time and they are continuing uh, doubling down on all the things they're mad and frustrated about. Just ticked off at the world. And you'll stay that way. You will stay that way if you stay on that course. Because whoever thinks there can be some other source of happiness, some other happy life, is chasing a joy that is not the true one. It is not to be found anywhere else but in the Lord himself. And then one other quote um, connects with that and uh, again relevant to those who would want and also Jesus in their life who have continued on the broad way that leads to destruction, the way of death, as the Didache calls it, the way um, of, of uh, self-service, self-interest, self-seeking, and again, certain unhappiness. Those who would, who would want to go down that road and think that they have also Jesus, Augustine would say this, anyone who loves something else along with you but does not love it for your sake loves you less. Anyone who loves something else along with you but does not love it for your sake loves you less. And there's a great reminder, a great exhortation to the people of Jesus today to love him more, to delight in him for his own sake. He is in and of himself uh, worthy of all of our affection. He is in and of himself a source of the deepest joy and happiness. And there is no other. And there's some of us today uh, who need to respond by getting back on the way that he has invited us onto. The way of forsaking lots of our own uh, earthly desires and passions, lots of our own um, interests, and making him our end pursuit. The last end is to know him. And there we will find the last end that our soul longs for, true, real happiness. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, thank you for your word as always and for the gift that you have given us in Jesus, that you've set your seal upon him, uh, that you have sent him down from heaven to give life to the world, he said. So, God, I pray that you would uh, just blow away today uh, some of the 
dustiness that has settled onto our Christian identity and experience and profession of faith. The crustiness that set in just from a, uh, a stagnant, self-interested way of life. And Lord, would you stir us to a, a, a discovery or a new recovery of the beauty and the sweetness that is to be found in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that even now, by your Spirit, that you would work in the hearts of people who maybe have never committed their lives to Jesus, have never made the resolute decision to follow him, to lay down their life and to follow him because he's worthy of their all. God, would you awaken hearts that are dead to the truth and make them today alive to Christ. Lord, would you lead to repentance those of us who need to repent? Would you lead to renewal of our commitment those who need to renew it? And would you lead all of us, Lord, to set our hope and our pursuit of happiness squarely and completely in you and you alone. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.